open door. I have to, I, I looked on my computer for pictures of the church of the open door. And actually, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's, it's rather similar to the setting for the uh, church at Philadelphia because the Church of the Open Door owned a city block in downtown Los Angeles, and they sold that property, and they moved to the upper campus of a Christian college there, which they purchased that portion of land, right on the side of the mountain. And uh, I saw, while I was there, a coyote. I saw evidences of a bear. Don't press me on that. And I saw, as I walked out of the church office, literally on the front lawn, a big buck grazing on the church lawn. And so that's my picture of the church at the open door sitting on the side of a mountain, which may not be all that different from uh, what we see in that ancient church. If you look at the uh, at the map, you will see where Philadelphia is here in a moment. Uh, and uh, there again, we're working our way down toward Laodicea and, and Hierapolis and uh, Colossae. If you look on the next map, uh, I wish that was a little better, and I haven't figured out how to do it, but the yellow lines are actually highways. And so what you see is the, the upper left-hand corner is Sardis, comes down through the valley, uh, follows the valley to Philadelphia, and then comes down and eventually will end up at Colossae or Laodicea. The road that runs uh, that runs through Nazili off to the left, if you were to follow that, would end up at Ephesus. All that's a way of saying that it was a city that was on the major thoroughfares of that day. And go ahead and show the next shot. I tossed this in. It's Google Earth. But I thought you'd like to see it just in relationship to Libya. Tripoli's off to the left, and uh, Benghazi is is more toward the center. It's not all that far from where things, uh, big things, are happening uh, even today. If you look at the next shot, you'll see. Uh, well, I love those snow-capped mountains, and notice the uh, the, the grapes uh, vineyards that grow in that volcanic ash. Uh, but actually, now switch to the second picture in my shaky little red line. That's the 800-foot high hill or elevation on which Philadelphia. Uh, was built, and militarily, it was actually pretty strong. Those last two shots that you'll see are just uh, pictures. Uh, the, the main thing I want you to see is not the Colosseum. We've seen enough of those. But notice the columns. When in uh, 17 AD, there was a, a major earthquake that affected not just Philadelphia, but other cities as well, and it leveled the city. Philadelphia was a little slower in the repair and rebuilding mode, and the reason was there were so many aftershocks that no, nobody really was too eager about rebuilding until they thought it was going to stand still for a while. And the other thing is, notice these, these columns and pillars. You know, if you think about an earthquake-prone place, and you have all of these uh, ancient buildings with these huge stone columns, you really don't want to be standing under one of those in an earthquake. So people decided that it was really nicer to live out of town than in town uh, with those pillars uh, being foreboding uh, implements of, uh, of death if you were under one at the wrong time. 
a place where Greek culture uh, was exported to many different places and uh, also a place where there were many gods, many temples uh, dedicated to the worship of various gods. I've listened to a number of sermons on uh, Philadelphia, and, and what I was looking for is sort of the thread that ran through this whole text that would help us to really get a sense of what the argument and the flow of this passage is. And uh, it seems to me that the key to the text is to understand the Jewish opposition. And and partly we can do that through the other text, and that is the, the words to Smyrna in chapter 2, that speak uh, similarly of the synagogue of Satan. So in both these churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia, there was a group of, of devout, unbelieving Jews who strongly resisted the gospel and opposed the church. And I think it's as we understand and gather the information we have on both of these churches that we can really see how this text uh, fits together and flows. These are the only two churches that are free of a rebuke and free of a call to repentance, Smyrna and Philadelphia. Neither is regarded as a strong church. You remember that uh, the church at Smyrna was called a church that was poor, and yet our Lord says, you are really rich. And the church at Philadelphia was known as the church with little strength. Some of the commentators and preachers take that little strength uh, numerically and say it was a small congregation. I'm not really sure how many churches in those days were large congregations, but it seems to me that's not the sense at all. It seems to me that what it's saying is you were a church that has a little power, not awesome, not like a church that has the reputation for being alive, but really isn't, not one that's highly esteemed, but a church who appears to be just sort of working their way along. You'll notice, perhaps on the screen, the text in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, that is written to the church at Smyrna. That might be helpful to us at this moment. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the following. This is the solemn pronouncement of the one who is the first and the last, the one who is dead but came to life. I know the distress you are suffering and your poverty, but you are rich. I also know the slander. I struck that out and retranslated blasphemy because that's literally the word. I know the blasphemy against you by those who call themselves Jews and really are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of the things you are about to suffer. The devil is about to have some of you thrown into prison uh, so that you may be tested and you will experience suffering for 10 days. Remain faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown that is life itself. You should note the word tested there is the same word that is used in our text that says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. Here in, in uh, Smyrna, they were not kept from testing, but we'll come to that in a minute. Both churches are persecuted by the Jews that are called the synagogue or a synagogue of Satan. In Smyrna, they are blasphemers who are speaking, I, I would say, against Christ first, 
and then against the church of our Lord. And it's through these people that Satan is working to oppose the church. So Satan is going to oppose them even to the point of death. In Philadelphia, they are called liars who claim to be Jews but are not. I think what you would say is they were Jewish ethnically. They were not true Jews in the biblical sense of being those who had faith in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But also in Philadelphia, they were those, and I'm, I'm, I'm now doing this by way of inference, but it seems to me that you have to say they were those who denied and opposed the fact that Gentiles were loved by God in the person of Jesus Christ. And I say that because the promise that is made is that they are going to bow their knees before these saints, these Gentile saints, and acknowledge that I have loved you. If they're going to acknowledge that resistantly, then surely they are at this moment in time saying, you are not loved. In other words, you are not a part of God's believing community. Jewish faith is not inclusive of Gentiles who embrace the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. That's the way I would understand it. In a sense, then, they've closed the gate. In the doorkeeper analogy, they've slammed the door on the Gentiles. But there's a little more door imagery yet to come. Philadelphia is distinguished from Smyrna in this regard. In Smyrna, the believers are tested by, by Satan's activity, right? And we would say they are tested so that they will be proven to be faithful to the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Philadelphia, it is unbelievers who are tested by our Lord. And I believe the test shows them to be unbelievers and worthy of God's wrath. We'll get back to that in, in a moment uh, or two. Different promises, therefore, are made. The promise to Smyrna is that they will be kept through testing. The testing that Satan has, the testing that may lead to physical death, imprisonment included in that. Whereas those in, in Philadelphia are promised God will keep them from testing. That is the testing that is going to come upon all those unbelievers who dwell upon the face of the earth. Now, this point's probably going to, uh, I don't know what it's going to do to you, but I'll just say it. This text, though it may be the best weapon in the pre-tribulational rapture arsenal, is not that definitive. It, it, uh, all I'm trying to say is, and I listened to S. Lewis Johnson on this point. Let me, let me do a little pause. I think I've told you this story before, but when we started Community Bible Chapel, I caught him in the hall over at Believer's Chapel, and I said to him, do you think an elder in the new work, that's what we called ourselves then, do you think an elder in the new work needs to be pre-trib, pre-tribulational pre rapture view? He smiled, and he said, Dr. Walford probably wouldn't like to hear this, but no, I don't think so. And And anyway... Then he turned to go back into his office and he stopped and he turned around and said, incidentally, post-tribbers have some powerful arguments. 
Now, when I didn't, I wanted to know more about that. I thought I had pressed as far as I dare for the moment, so I let it go. I listened to his two sermons on this text. Both sermons were devoted to verse 10. I will keep you from the hour of testing. The first leaned toward the pre-tribulational view. The second took the more post-tribulational view. And here's what he said. A. This text does not definitively decide that case. This text does not definitively decide that case. And two, this text and the issue at hand should not be dividing Christians. This is not really a fundamental of the faith. So the reality is, after two sermons, he still didn't tell us exactly where he stood on that issue. But what he was trying to say is, We all need to have a little bit of humility and understand that Christians disagree, solid Christians disagree, and uh, the argument goes on uh, and will continue to go on. But I'll tell you what, I don't think that that is the heart and soul of this text, and that's why I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, debating the issue. He will keep us... From the hour of testing, and that is the point at which I understand there will be no believers on the face of the earth, and it is unbelievers who are now receiving the wrath of God. They literally, in the face of all of the evidence, curse God and want the mountains to fall on them, but they will not repent. That's the test, and they fail it. Okay, so what I'm saying is, if, we under, if we're going to understand this letter written to those at Philadelphia, we need to understand it in the light of Jewish opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to the church of our Lord. Now, look how that helps things to fit together as we, as we look, first of all, at the description of our Lord at verse 7. He describes himself as the one who is holy and true. Now, is that not the diametric opposite of the assessment of unbelieving Judaism? Is is it not Jesus who they are saying is unholy and true in the sense of authentic, genuine? And so they are saying he is not the genuine Messiah and he is not holy. Now, think about these texts. We don't have time to go through all of them, but I I list Mark 3.22. They say, when Jesus has done all these miracles, the first effort is, well, these aren't really miracles at all. These are just kind of fake. Finally, they pile up to the depth where they can't deny the miracle anymore. And so what they say is, he's demon-possessed. He's possessed of Beelzebul. That's not holy, folks. They're unclean spirits. He is possessed of Beelzebul, and he does these things through the power of Beelzebul. That's the opposite of holy. John chapter 8, verse 41, they say, we haven't been born of fornication. They're now challenging the birth of our Lord and his origins and saying he is unholy because of that. And then in John chapter 9, the next chapter, uh, the whole issue is, who is this Jesus who has given this man sight when he's been born blind? And they say, This man is a sinner. Glorify God. This man is a sinner. That our Lord responds to by saying, the one who speaks is the one who is holy. 
then he is also the one who is true. He is authentic. He is genuine. Remember in Matthew 27 and verse 63, after the crucifixion of our Lord and when he is buried, they say, that deceiver said... After three days, I'm going to rise again. That's why they ask for the, for the guards to be stationed there at the tomb. Jesus is not authentic to them. He is the deceiver. But Jesus says, I am the one who is holy and true. And the third is, he is the one who holds the keys of David. Now, there are several things I think we need to understand, but this, this for me really helps the New Testament and the opposition to Jesus kind of come into focus. The Jewish religious leaders saw themselves as the gatekeepers. They saw themselves as having the key, as it were, of entrance into the kingdom of, of God. So in, in, in John chapter 7 and verse 13, remember where Jesus is, is ready and he's going to go up into Jerusalem and all the people are, are, are expected and wondering, is Jesus going to show? But it says people were even afraid to discuss the question of Jesus because they feared the Jews. Why did they fear the Jews? Because the Jews had the keys to the kingdom. You mess with the one who has the keys to the kingdom and you are doomed eternally. That's the way they wanted you to see it. That was the source of the fear that they generated. So in John chapter 9 and verse 34, when the man born blind finally pushes these, this crowd too far, they cast him out of the synagogue. And in their minds, they had cast him into eternal damnation. They had the keys in their minds to the kingdom. Now, go to Isaiah chapter 22. Starting at verse 15. Really a fascinating text. And it has to be one that our Lord is, is uh, drawing upon. Verse 15 of Isaiah 22. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. You might say, Shebna has the keys for the Davidic household. And uh, it says, What right do you have uh, here? And whom do you have here that you have hewn a tomb for yourself here, uh, you who hew a tomb on the height? In other words, here he's making a, a tomb, a monument to himself, and so on. And then in verse 19, God says, And I will depose you from your office. I will pull you down from your station. Then it will come about in that day that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. In other words, you're fired and you're replaced by Hilkiah. And I will clothe him in your tunic, tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority. He gets your job. He gets your authority. In a sense, it's saying, hand over the keys. Right? And that even literally will be said. So verse 22, Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. So here's this picture of an unfaithful steward who was replaced by God, uh, by one who is faithful. That replacement 
uh, is now going to be the one who receives that authority. And if you have the keys to the kingdom of David, you have access to every blessing, every advantage, as it were, of the uh, Davidic uh, promises. So that's the, the text that surely has to be in view. Then when you go to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 18, our Lord Jesus says, Write therefore the things which you have seen and the things that are, whoops, let's go back, verse 18, And the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. I don't know if any of you are Steve Green fans, but does this thing of the keys, does that ring a bell? I think he had a label uh, on a CD called He Holds the Keys. And that's this is the text, I think, that would underlie that is the Lord Jesus is the one who holds the keys. Now, he's going to hand those keys over. And so when you come, for instance, to Matthew chapter 21, it starts actually in verse 33. And we won't go all the way through that text. But you remember, this is the story that our Lord Jesus tells where the owner of the vineyard uh, gives control. He's going to go away. He puts the vineyard in the control of these who are hired. Then he sends his servants and eventually sends his son to collect that which was due him as the owner of the vineyard. And the vineyard workers say to themselves, here's the son. If we kill the son, then we can possess the vineyard and it'll be ours. And so they kill the son. And remember, our Lord says here and in Luke as well, what then should the owner of the vineyard do? Well, look at this. Verse 43. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing fruit of it. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. And when they sought to seize him, they became afraid of the multitudes because he held, they held him to be a prophet. The, the Lord's parables toward the end of his public ministry were parables that, that rather than t to veil the truth from uh, either the unbelievers who had, who had said he's working in the power of Satan or his believers who had to ask him to, to find out what they meant. Now the parables are told so the disciples won't understand what Jesus is saying, but his opposition does. And they understand Jesus to be saying, you are bad stewards. I left you in charge of my flock. You are bad shepherds, drawing on Jeremiah and the prophets. You're bad shepherds. You're fired. You've been replaced. No wonder they were so upset with Jesus. And no wonder they thought he needed to be done away with. So the Jewish uh, key holders, so to speak, have been replaced. And you see that in other places as well. The new key holder, and I think we have to look at this in Matthew 16, just after the great confession, Jesus says in Matthew 16, beginning at verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, that is to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
And I also say to you that you were Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, doors, will not prevail or overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you shall bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you shall loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Is he not saying, if you close the door, it's closed. If you open the door, it's open. You have the keys to the kingdom. They, the key giver, our Lord Jesus, gives those keys to his disciples. Now, when you get to verses 7 and 8, you get this word of assurance. Working on this imagery now of the door opener or the door closer, the keeper of the door. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 and eight. Let me get back to there. He says, To the uh, angel of the church of Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power, and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Words of encouragement. Surely we would see in this the imagery of opening and closing doors, which no one can reverse. Is that not a clear picture of the sovereignty of our Lord? He is the one who is in charge. When he opens the door, it isn't going to close. When he closes the door, it's not going to open. He is the sovereign keeper of the door. And he says to them, I have opened a door. I believe that that door certainly signifies the door of blessings, of the Davidic uh, blessings that were going to come through Messiah. I believe that is true. And I think you can see then further how that is played out when the imagery is used, for example, in Acts chapter 14 and verse 27. This is at the end of the first missionary journey. They have come back and they are making a report as to what our Lord has done in that mission, primarily focusing on Gentiles as it developed. It says they began to report how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So then when you look at 1 Corinthians 16, God opens the door for Paul's effective service. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he opens the door of ministry opportunity for Paul. And in Colossians chapter 4 and verse 3, he opens the door for the preaching of the gospel. It seems clear to me that the door which our Lord has opened is a door which is leading to evangelistic opportunities, that is, evangelistic opportunities, probably primarily amongst Gentiles, in spite of what the Jews are saying and doing, in spite of the fact that they have little strength. God says the door is open. And, and uh, they are, I think, by inference to walk through. Now, take a look at Acts chapter 18. This seems to me to be just a perfect illustration of that. Remember, Paul left Athens, comes to Corinth, works with Priscilla and Aquila, uh, making uh, tents with them. And then when Timothy and Silas come down from Macedonia, Paul devotes himself entirely, completely to the preaching of the gospel. 
And, and then you, you notice that uh, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household, and many others believed as well. Verses 9 and 10. And the Lord said to Paul in, in the night by a vision, Do not be afraid, New American Standard Version says, any longer, because it's really saying, stop being afraid, is, is the sense of it. Stop being afraid, go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. Is that not exactly the same thing that is being said to those at the church at Philadelphia? He's saying, look, opposition's going to come. Yes, it looks very foreboding. I'm not finished winning people to faith in me. The door is open. Don't fear. Keep preaching. Now, I cannot leave this text laying there in the book of Acts and not superimpose that on Revelation and say, surely that's the inference of what our Lord is saying to the church at Philadelphia. I have opened the door. Is there great opposition? You bet. Is there little strength on your part? Yes. But I opened the door. I'm the one who is genuine, who is holy, and the doorkeeper, in a sense, then walk through it. So here are the ex, uh, exhortations that we see. He says that they will be kept from the hour of testing of those who dwell on the earth. Now, if you look at that expression, those who dwell on the earth, in the rest of the book of Revelation, virtually every time it is used, it is used of unbelievers. And if you have any doubt of that, then you need to look with me at a couple of texts. Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. Oh, let's go back and pick up at verse 7. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, that is the beast, every one whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb. Is that not clear? Those who are dwelling on the earth are those who have not been written down in the book. They are not saved. Now, look over just one other text among those in chapter 17 and verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and to go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth will wonder whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. And when they see the beast, that uh, he was and is not and will come. So, as I understand the hour of testing, it is the hour of God's judgment upon the unbelieving world. And our Lord rightly assures believers they will not be there to endure that wrath. Now, you're saying, well, and what about this whole rapture thing? Well, it doesn't solve the question about exactly when the removal will come. That's where the discussion comes. Some would say, would like to believe, hey, it's going to come first. I'm not going to suffer at all. I'm just bailing out of here. It's a lovely thought. 
And, and you hang on to that thought real carefully as things get worse and worse. But there are, there are others, I suppose you have to include me in that, that are saying there will be suffering. Not the outpouring of God's wrath, but the outpouring of man's wrath toward God. That I believe Christians will face. But here he is saying, and he's playing off the word kept, by the way. Because you have kept yourselves faithful to me, I will keep you out of that hour of testing. Notice he says, I am coming quickly, which is really interesting because he said that in chapter 2 and verse 16 to the saints at Pergamum. The only problem is the saints at Pergamum, he's saying, you better watch out. You know, it was not an encouraging word. It was a word of warning because of the sin that was undealt with there in the church. Hold fast that no one take away your crown. Perseverance. Stay in there, he's saying. Now, notice the blessings. And again, I say this, for me, if I understand this in the light of this intense Jewish unbelieving opposition, I want you to notice the imagery. Now, remember, we are far past 70 AD, okay? The temple has been destroyed. There is no temple in Jerusalem. Remember as well that when you look in the book of Acts, the opposition to the preaching of the gospel was strongest among those who were Hellenistic Jews, like Paul. The native Hebrews, the sort of native Palestinians, they kind of phased out. They dropped back when you get to the book of Acts, not the Hellenistic Jews. So here you have, as I would see it, Hellenistic Jews who have an intensity about them with regard to the temple. And remember when they, for instance, are the ringleaders of bringing about the death of Stephen? What is it they say? He speaks against this holy place. He speaks against our temple. Well, there isn't a temple anymore. And I don't know what it did to them, but I would think it just made a matter than wet hands. Uh, I don't think they're happy about this. So what is the language he uses to Gentile Christians to speak about their sure and certain blessings? He says... I will make you a pillar in the temple of God that will not go out. Now, I don't know whether that's a play off of it won't run out of town the next time it shakes and trembles a little bit or whatever, but I, I just summarize that in my mind as saying, I'm going to make you a permanent pillar in the temple of God. No destruction of 70 A.D. in that heavenly temple. Uh, no earthquakes that will bring it down. And and now, I, I think the thing that I really love about this is, when you look at Ephesians chapter 2, or in 1 Peter chapter 2, you see the church being built up, and as it were, each believer is like a little stone or like a, like a brick in that building. I think that, that unbelieving Judaism, one, wanted to bar the gate for Gentiles, and two, if anyone happened to slip in, Make sure they feel like second-class Christians. All I can say is, in this text, he not only promises they're going to be little bricks in the building, they're going to be the pillars of the building. Now, doesn't that, doesn't that just ring something true to you as, as a Gentile who is being put down, as it were, and opposed by unbelieving Jews, and they think this temple stuff is only for them? 
Now you're told you're a permanent fixture in the temple of God. Indeed, you were a pillar. Here's something I need to ponder more fully. Four times we see the word my. He says you will be, uh, you will have the name of my God. You will have the name of the city of my God in the New Jerusalem. Four times in that, in that text, it says my. So our Lord Jesus is linking himself with the Father. Remember, they were trying to separate Jesus from God the Father in all kinds of ways in their unbelief. He's saying, they will not only, they not only embrace me, they enter into the blessings of my Father. The God of the Old Testament, that's the blessings which they will receive. My name, the city of my name, not some city that gets destroyed in 17 AD, gradually, reluctantly rebuilt, whatever. They will have the name of that holy city emblazoned upon them. And all I simply say is, are these not Jewish blessings? Is this not a promise of Jewish blessing to Gentile Christians? And isn't that the point when the synagogue of Satan is harassing them? So let's talk about some things uh, in conclusion. What a word of comfort and assurance for Gentile saints. You know, if you're being put down as second-class citizens in the kingdom, there isn't any second-class status here, folks. In fact, those who oppose you most are the ones who are going to come and they are going to bow down before you and they are going to acknowledge, Jesus says, that I loved you. That is, I didn't reject you, I selected you. I drew you to myself. I embraced you. They're going to have to acknowledge that as they bow their knees, having been defeated by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if our Lord is the sovereign doorkeeper, what does that say to us about our prayers? Now, I remember one time a young woman whose husband was not saved and she agonized greatly because somebody had spoken to her about the sovereignty of God. And I said, who would you rather have uh, in control of your husband's eternal destiny? A God who loves to see sinners come to faith who doesn't delight in the destruction of sinners or your husband. Man, I put my petitions in with God every time. And this text says he is the gatekeeper. We ought to be appealing to the gatekeeper, should we not? By the way, I had just thought of that example. Remember when when uh, John and, and, and Peter, we assume it's John, when they're standing outside and the, and the gatekeeper recognizes John, wasn't it, and lets him in? You know, it's, it's a good thing to know the keeper of the gate. It really is. Okay. How should this impact our witness? Well, it seems to me if we know that God has placed before us an open door, that gives us all kinds of courage, like we see in Acts chapter 18. It gives us all kinds of incentive to say, I don't care what the opposition looks like. I don't care what the culture looks like. If God tells me there's an open door, then I need to walk through it. I need to pursue the things that God has given me or us as a church to do. And then we are in turbulent times. I'm afraid to think about what next week's going to hold, folks. I mean, you know, we have one thing last week, and Japan was at the center of the focus of our minds, and now we got the Middle East, and Libya is the front of our minds. What's next week? I don't know. But I know this. 
The one in whom we have placed our trust is the keeper of the door. He opens. He closes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rest my future and my fate with him. He's the one who opens and closes the doors. It enables us to see opposition uh, through God's eyes. I would imagine, now you look at those at Smyrna, it was clear that some of those people were not only going to prison, some were going to die. It's easy when the opposition is intense. It's easy to, look, to, to view them as though they're winning. And this text tells these saints, no, they're not. No, they're not. They're going to bow the knee and acknowledge, I have loved you. You're going to get the blessings that I have promised. That ought to help us in days where I believe the opposition is coming and more firmly. D, God delights to use the weak and powerless. Is that not true? You know, so often it seems like we're given the other end of that story. But you think about Judges chapter 7, Gideon. And God says, your problem isn't you've got too few. You look at the numbers there of, of those, what was it, 31,000 or whatever, that were going to go to battle and, and, and then they whittle, God whittles them down to 300. God says, your problem is you've got too many. You've got too many. You're liable to take the credit for yourself. You've got to thin this thing down. And you see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. God uses the weak things and the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of the wise. Why? Because God is about bringing glory to himself, not to us. If we've got great numbers and great possibilities, then folks, God just made the right choice to pick us. If we are weak, then it's God who is great. Same thing in 2 Corinthians 12. Remember where Paul talks about the thorn in the flesh? And he says, I now know that when I am weak, then I'm strong because I'm resting in him, not me. I added this last point. I hope it's there. Ah, yes. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. You know, you go to some churches, or you could, I should say, go to some churches, or you watch them on TV, and it's all about your untapped potential. Do you realize you are just a reservoir of untapped genius and abilities? And all you got to do is just tap those resources. Baloney. Look at this text. This text is not about their greatness. They're few. They're weak. They're opposed. The opposition is great. They're, they're not looking at themselves saying, wow, what a great, powerful, strong. In fact, the strongest church by reputation is the one our Lord says is dead. Or nearly so. Here is a church that is just struggling along, but they've remained faithful to the Savior and to his word. And God says, I'm going to do great things through you. You know, last week, you could have walked away from the congregational meeting and looked at those statistics and, and had kind of a bummer. Said to yourself, man, don't have as much money as we did last year, you know, in a sense... We've got less resource to work on. Did it ever occur to you that maybe we're like Gideon and we're just getting to the point where we lack resources enough that the open door God puts before us is his occasion to demonstrate his greatness through the weakness that's in us. Not our strength, 
but our weakness. Our job is to remain faithful to him and to his word. But his promise is that when he opens a door, he will prevail and give us the victory. That ought to be the note that we take away. That ought to be the note on which we live. Because we're no different in my mind than the church at Philadelphia. We're called on to trust him and remain faithful to his word and to look to him to do great things for his glory. Father, we thank you for this text. Help us to get courage, enthusiasm, boldness, not because of anything in us, but because of what you have said of yourself. And we believe it. We believe Jesus is the Holy One. He is the genuine Messiah, and he is the one who holds the keys. Father, we pray that if there's someone here this morning who has never embraced him as the only way, the doorkeeper of heaven, that they would realize, as Jesus said in John chapter 10, he is the one who is the door. May they embrace him as the one who sacrificed himself and bore the penalty for our sin. May they trust in him. And Father, may we, as we go about our lives, as we see the opposition building, as we see and recognize our own weaknesses, may we focus on you, not ourselves, on you, and do those things that you have given us to do, knowing you are the keeper of the door. In Jesus' name, amen.